Good morning. Our scripture this morning is Romans 2, 12 through 16. For all, have, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and uh, get to work on Romans 2. God, we need your help today, and you, Holy Spirit, we need your illuminating power um, to make this text alive within us. And I pray that you would help me to clearly identify what it is that you are saying here and then connect it to where we live so that we could have hope and we can be um, exhorted and we can grow. That today we'll leave just one step closer in becoming more and more like your son. So Holy Spirit, help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by asking you an eternally important question. And that question is this. Some of you may be familiar with it. It sounds like this. If you were to die today and stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? That diagnostic question is an important one because all of us have an answer to that question. It may not be the right answer, but we all have an answer. And frankly, it's revealing. Your answer would be revealing as to what you believe about sin, um, yourself, the Bible, the cross. So that question is really, really significant. And the great thing is, is that the book of Romans answers that question for us. In fact, chapter 1, as we've studied, already shows us the dark backdrop against which humanity exists. It shows us that if you were to say to God, well, the reason that you should let me into heaven is because I'm good, Romans 1 blows that out of the water. So Romans helps us to understand what kind of answer we might give if that question were to be asked of us. So some people would say, I'm good, therefore you should let me into heaven. There's another answer. And that is an answer given by people who Maybe they think they're good, but they know they're really not that good. So what they do instead, instead of saying, I'm good, they say, well, God, you should let me into heaven because I'm better than most people. And what they do is they compare. So they compare themselves to somebody else, thinking that if I could just be better than others, then, then God, you should love me and save me and let me into heaven. And this whole thing of comparison is... Boy, it's a part of who we are as human beings. I mean, even, remember elementary school? Remember this classic comeback? I know you are, but what am I, right? So at, at the heart of that really intelligent statement is a comparison. And we human beings do it all the time. What Paul is doing in our text today in Romans chapter 2 is addressing the comparisons that Jews would make of themselves with Gentiles. After all, chapter 1 was basically about how lost the world is, how lost the pagan world is, the Gentile culture is. And there might be some who, as Jews, would look at the Gentile world and kind of look down their 
judgmental nose at them and think, you know what, we're okay because we're God's chosen people. We have the law. I mean, we have a morality. We have a code. And so Paul speaks to that sort of mindset. Today we're going to see how God deals with this matter of the law and how he deals with the matter of his judgment And we left last week at verse 11 where the text says that God shows no partiality. And Paul's point in this section is simply that everyone is lost, all have sinned, everyone's fallen short of God's glory. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're all lost. That's his point. And so he's going to unpack that a little bit further. Now embedded in this text is a very important question, and it's this one. How does God judge? Does he treat a Jew differently than a Gentile? If somebody has a a long spiritual heritage and a a knowledge of the Scriptures, does God treat them differently than somebody else? So it's important for you to understand as we go into this text that Paul's primary audience and to whom this passage was written were Jewish people who would use their spiritual heritage, their morality, as a basis for thinking that they were special or could get a pass on God's judgment. But the implications of this passage very much relate to all of us in this room today. So let's take up that question, how does God judge according to this text? The first thing we learn, and there's four things, the first thing that we learn is that God judges by the standard people possess. Look at verse 12. It says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Let me just tell you what this passage says, and then we'll unpack it more fully. It basically says that whether you have the law or whether you don't have the law, the fact of the matter is you're all going to be judged. And if you have the law, you're judged based upon the basis of that law. And if you don't have the law, you're still judged based upon a law, but not the law. That's the point. And where Paul is driving all of this is to chapter 3 and verse 23, where it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where this is going. Paul wants to get us to the point that we realize whether we're Jew or Gentile, whether we have the law or don't have the law, every single human being has fallen short of God's glory. Human beings, therefore, are judged based upon the law that they know, whether it's the official Old Testament law or it's another kind of law. Now that raises a really important subject because this is the first time that Paul uses the word law in the book of Rome or the book of Romans to this church at Rome. And this idea of law is central to some of the things that Paul will say throughout this great book. For example, in Romans 3 and verse 20, In fact, go there. Take a look at this passage. We keep coming back to 3.20 or 3.21 because this is really the consummation of Paul's argument. Paul says this in Romans 3.20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what Paul does is he links our inability to please God, he links our depravity, he links the brokenness of our humanity with this inability to keep the law. But you need to know that when Paul talks about the law, it's important for you to know what exactly he's talking about. Because Paul talks about the law in two ways. First, when he uses that word, it can refer to the official Old Testament Mosaic Law. Think Ten Commandments, think Deuteronomy, think Leviticus. 
all of the moral codes. And the challenge, though, is in the Greek that when, when Paul writes, he doesn't say the law. In fact, literally translated, it would read, all who have sinned without law. The word the isn't there. Now, you can supply it when you're translating if that's what the context demands, that you're allowed to do that. In fact, that is exactly what the New American Standard Bible has done. If you have an English Standard Version like, like I have, you'll see that the word law is not capitalized. It's in lowercase, and yet at the same time, they added the word the. They've supplied it even though it's not in the original language. They did that because clearly Paul is talking about the Old Testament law. and the New American Standard Version, they not only kept the word the in there, but they actually used the capital L word for law. And the point is, is that when Paul talks about law, sometimes he's very specifically talking about the Old Testament moral code, the law. But that's one way that Paul can use it. He also uses the word law, not referring to that kind of law, but think of it as the law underneath the law or the principle of the law. Look back at 2 in verse 14, and you'll see how he does this. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, and that's lowercase in ESV, but if you have a New American Standard, it's capitalized. And here I have it for you on the screen. When Gentiles do not have the capital L law, do instinctively the things of the capital L law, these not having the capital L law are a lowercase l law to themselves. You see it? So what Paul is identifying here is that even though you don't have the official law of God, there's still a law underneath the law. There's still a principle of law-keeping that is distinct even from the Mosaic law. You may think, well, why is this important? Oh, this is incredibly important to what Paul is going to tell us. Go to chapter 7 and verse 6 of the book of Romans. I'm trying to highlight for you in chapters 1 and 2 messages and themes that are going to show up later for us so you understand the argument of the book of Romans, so you understand we're looking at only five or six verses on a Sunday. How does this fit for the overall message? And let me tell you, this idea of law is really important because what Paul's going to show us is that you cannot be made righteous by keeping the law, and yet at the same time, after God declares you to be righteous, now there's a new law that you are to obey, and that law isn't the written letter of the law, but now you have a new law born by the Spirit that comes from the inside out. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 7 and verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we, by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. So Paul's going to make this great point about how do you live after having received Christ. And his answer is you walk by the Spirit. That the new law that you have is a Spirit-born law. A law that comes out of the heart that God has given you by virtue of the Spirit. Does it use the Bible? Absolutely. It's as you read the Bible, you suddenly see what the Bible says. Something clicks in your soul. And you also are able to apply the Bible to other areas of life that perhaps the Bible addresses in principle form, but not in the specific letter Or the law form. And that's where Paul is driving towards. In fact, go to Romans chapter 8. You'll see this in another text. Look at Romans 8 and verse 3. 
Paul says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in likeness of sinful flesh for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And if He just stopped there, it would be a great statement, but it wouldn't be the fully orbed reality of what Paul wants us to experience because the next thing he says is, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we're going to talk a lot through Romans about faith and about belief. We're going to talk about that you're saved by faith alone. And yet, at the same time, Romans is also filled with instructions about what it means to really obey. And coming to faith in Christ alone now means that you actually can truly obey, not from the literal letter of the law, but because of the spirit of the law born in you by the Holy Spirit. You see, there are always two dangers. Both of these two dangers Paul is trying to address. One is legalism, where you would think that you're saved or justified by your own works. And the other is antinomianism, which means that you think there's no longer any law and I don't have to worry about obedience at all. And both of those are equally as dangerous and as damnable as the other. What Paul is doing is trying to help us how to balance legalism and antinomianism and helping us understand that God has written through the gospel a new law by His Spirit on our hearts. So in the same way that creation makes everyone accountable for the knowledge of God's existence. So what Paul is saying here is that there is an internal witness, a law under the law. Go back to verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So as much as creation declares that God exists... So Paul is saying, even Gentiles who don't have the law, they're going to be judged. They're going to be judged by a law. Well, what is that law? It's the law of the internal witness of their own heart. The law of the fact that they know that there are certain things that are right and there are certain things that are wrong. The Bible says that people instinctively know that there's right and there's wrong. I saw a report done by Anderson Cooper this week coming out of the Yale University Baby Lab. And for eight years, they studied infants. And here's what they did. They put infants on their laps with their parents in a room, and they showed them a puppet show of live puppets of a cat who went and took a box and tried to open a box. And then a mean bunny in a green shirt would come and close the box on the cat. And then a nice bunny would come in and would open the box and help the cat. And they showed this over and over and over. And then... They brought both bunnies, one with the green shirt on who was mean and the other one with a red shirt on that was nice and they presented both bunnies to the kids. And guess which bunny 80% of children chose? The nice bunny. And their stunning reality, in their stunning discovery in this experiment was that children are not blank moral slates, that they actually have a moral code built into the very essence of who they are. And I watched that and said, no duh. Because <laughs> that's what Romans tells me, right? It says that even if you don't have the official moral law, you know that there's certain things that are right and there are certain things that are wrong. You know that when you pass by somebody in the street and their car's in the ditch, that you got to stop and try and help them. Right? Some of you are feeling really convicted right now, right? So <laughs> this is an internal 
witness that there's right and there's wrong. Oh, sure, people may not know everything that's right. They may not know everything that's wrong. But there's a fundamental, normal, moral law that exists within every human being. And what Paul says here is whether you're a Jew and you have the law or whether you're Gentile and you don't have the law, you'll be judged because everyone knows the laws under the law. Here's the second thing. Paul also tells us that actions, not just hearing, really matter. Verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now this verse is important And it's complicated. It's complicated because the second half of the verse says, but the doers of the law will be justified. So that, how does that fit with faith alone saves? I'll come back to that in a moment. The first part, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. This should sound pretty familiar to you because in chapter 2 and verse 6, we heard these words, he will render to each one according to his works. And what I said to you last week about that text was this, that actions matter. It's not just hearing that matters, but actions matter and actions become the basis of our judgment And just because you know a truth doesn't mean that you've actually acted on that truth. And this is really important because there is a real danger for people who regularly hear or read or study the Bible that somehow we can become those who hear and know but don't actually respond. A person who knows what the Bible says and yet decides not to act on it. And James says that these sorts of people are self-deceived. James 1 says this, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. What's the deception? Well, the deception is, if I know the truth, that's enough. No, it's not. You have to act on the truth. So just simply knowing the truth won't avert you from judgment. Because judgment is based not on knowledge alone. It's based upon actions. Let me illustrate this. Uh, think, for instance, of the last time that um, you were pulled over by a police officer. You got that in your head? Feeling guilty at this moment, right? So you roll down your window, you put your hands on the steering wheel, police officer comes up to the vehicle, and he or she is going to ask you, likely, a particular question. What is that question that he or she is going to ask you? Some of you know this question well. Come on. <laughs> the question might be either A, do you know how fast you were going? Or B, do you know what the speed limit on this road is, right? This is not a test of your knowledge, just so you know, right? Because the reality is, no matter what you answer, the real issue is not your knowledge. You weren't pulled over because of a lack of knowledge. You were pulled over because of a lack of compliance to either what you should know or what you did know and refused to obey. That's the point. The point is, is that actions really matter. Actions trump knowledge. And for the Jews, this meant something really, really important. It meant that they couldn't appeal to God by their Jewishness. They couldn't appeal to him by the knowledge of the law in order for them to get a pass on God's judgment. God is going to be impartial. He's going to judge the Gentiles based upon the law that they know. He's going to judge the Jews based upon the law that they know. And the basis of that judgment is going to be their works their actions knowledge alone will not get them a pass 
Now, this becomes really important when you look at the second half of verse 13, when he says this, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, that's a a challenging verse because, go over to chapter 3, in verse 20, a passage we already looked at before, and remember, chapter 2 and verse 13 says, the doers of the law will be justified, but then chapter 3 and verse 20 says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. What? So if you're reading that, you see that there's, how do those two verses go together? How are they connected? Let me explain to you how they are connected, and context really matters. In chapter 2, Paul is addressing those people who think they're going to get a pass on God's judgment because they're hearers and not doers. And so he's looking at doing from that angle, saying, no, doing is what you're on the line for when it comes to your judgment before God. And so he's approaching their actions from the framework of, you think you're going to get a pass just because you've heard the law? No, no, no. It's actions that create the moment of judgment. But in chapter 3, he's looking at actions from a different angle, from people who not were saying, our hearing is what gives us a pass. Chapter 3, it's people who are saying, our good works get us a pass. And so, in in chapter 2, he's addressing those who are worried or concerned or making the case about hearing without their actions. And in chapter 3, he's addressing people who think that their actions are somehow going to save them. And when you think about it, this matter of justification... We often talk about justification like this. Justification means faith alone saves, and it absolutely does. But you need to know that works are a very important part of justification. Let me explain. When you receive Christ by faith, it not only means that your sins are forgiven, but it means that you are given the righteousness of Christ. So when you stand before God, it is not just that works don't matter, it's that your works don't matter, and Jesus' works do matter, and they've been given to you. That's what it means. So justification is on the basis of works, but it's not your works, it's not my works. That's what it means. It means that Jesus perfectly obeyed the law, dies the death, satisfies the just requirements of the law and the beautiful miracle of justification is that god takes the obedience of jesus and he gives it to me so that i can be justified so as it relates to my justification oh it has nothing to do with my works but it has everything to do with works it's just not my works it's jesus's works and that friends is unbelievably glorious because it means that i not only have been forgiven but the miracle of justification it is that god considers me to be as righteous as his son even though i know and god knows that i'm not see in this way no one can be justified by the works of the law absolutely i can't but no one is justified without the works of the law because they're justified with the righteousness that comes from christ Look at chapter 3, again, verse 21. See if this proves to be true. With that lens, now look at this text. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed or has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, there's obedience, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See it? 
It is that we are given the righteousness of Christ. So the glorious message of the good news is that God counts me righteous and he counts me righteous because of Jesus' works. So judgment is not based upon hearing. Judgment is based upon actions. And justification is by faith alone, not our actions. Justification means that I have been legally declared to be righteous. I've been declared to be a doer of the law, even though I haven't kept the law and Jesus did. This is the beauty and the miracle of what justification is all about. And Paul's point here is this. Hearing alone will not stand in God's judgment. It's only the doer's who will be justified. And the only way that you do keeping the law, only way that you keep the law and become a doer of the law is by having Jesus' righteousness given to you. Third, the judgment that happens is from the inside out. Verses 14 to 15. Rather than focus on, focusing on an external obedience... Paul now turns attention towards an inward reality, and that will become a theme in the book of Romans. Verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So I've already talked about this. They, they, they do the law, even though they don't have the law. They, they really are keeping the law because there's a law sort of underneath the law. Verse 15, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So the key here is that the Gentiles do not have the law. Paul says that twice. They don't have the law, they don't have the law, and yet they're keeping the law. And even in their keeping the, their law, there's, a, there's an internal witness, a conscience that is giving evidence as to whether or not they are on the right path or they're on the wrong path. And so Paul helps us to see two important things here, that this law is written on the heart... And secondly, it's a matter of conscience, convicting or assuring us. So Paul is focusing on this because he is driving, and we'll see this next week, towards a heart-based analysis of who we really are. He's going to press this, press this specifically with Jews who are making a big deal about their religious identity, about circumcision and their position that they had as God's people. And Paul is going to go after this. In fact, look at chapter 2 and verse 28. We'll study this next week. He says, For one is a Jew, for no one is a Jew, rather, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. You see what he's doing? So he's building a case here for true obedience, for true righteousness, not based upon externals or your history or your heritage or your special position. Paul is showing them and us that real righteousness is first and foremost a matter of an internal orientation, and that then results in external actions. So Paul says anybody who trusts in heritage or knowledge or religious activity who thinks that that will exempt them from judgment, is seriously mistaken. There's judgment from the inside out. And then finally, the fourth thing here as to how God judges is that he judges on the basis of the gospel. Verse 16. After Paul says, 
their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Then verse 16, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, it is, I think, odd, or at first it seems odd, that he puts the gospel right in the middle of the section on judgment. He could have said any number of things. He could have said, verse 16, on that day when, according to his righteousness, God judges the secrets of men. He could have said, on that day when, according to his law, he judges the secrets of men. But God doesn't say that. Romans doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say that. Why does he say, according to my gospel? Well, he says that because first, he's referring to the final day of judgment. That's why verse 16 says, but on that day. That's referring to the ultimate judgment when men and women will appear before their creator and their relationship with him will be revealed. But verse 16 also points us back to verse 13 where it says, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous, but the doers of the law. In other words, what Paul is doing is showing us justification that comes and involves works. Again, not my works, because I can't, because I have sinned, but involves the works of another. So how does the gospel relate to, to judgment? Well, the gospel is central to judgment. Because the gospel is the thing by which judgment can actually take place and the means by which people are evaluated based upon their good works that have resulted in them being um, separated from God. Their, their works that cannot measure up as good as you possibly could ever be. It's never going to be enough. Or your judgment is based upon the good works of Jesus. So the gospel is very much in play Meaning either your works will condemn you or your faith in Jesus' works will save you. So judgment is on works, whether your works or Jesus' works. And therefore, there is a gospel context as it relates to judgment. So you either have your righteousness, which will result in judgment, or you have the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. And this takes us all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 7 where we learn that the righteous live by faith. So how are you made righteous? You're made righteous by believing in Jesus' righteousness and the beautiful story that God will take Christ's righteousness and apply it to your account if you will just turn from your sin and believe in Him. So when you stand before Him on Judgment Day, you will be judged not by your works but on Jesus' works. And that's how the Gospel relates to judgment. It's no wonder Paul says... On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So, this is how God judges. And it involves both hearing and believing and doing. So let me connect this now to all of us. Help you understand how this relates to where we live since Paul was speaking very specifically to Jewish people. The first is this. We've talked rather negatively about hearing, but you need to understand that hearing the gospel message is critical. And by that I mean the gospel message that God is willing to forgive you in Christ, that your works won't work. You need Christ's work. 
And it's important for you to realize and to be reminded and to be exhorted that people need to hear that message because that message is not intuitively known. It's intuitively known that we aren't perfect. It's intuitively known that there's a standard of right and wrong. It's intuitively known, according to the Bible, that God exists. But what isn't intuitively understood by the world is that there's a pathway, a means, a Savior by which people can be saved from their sins. And it involves turning from their work and their activity and instead, by faith, believing in Jesus' work. And that message needs to be declared. That's the message that people have to hear. So as you think about spring that's coming, and oh, I hope it's coming, right? And you think of your neighbors that you live around and you haven't even seen them for like, it feels like, you know, seven months, right? You don't even know if someone lives over there anymore, you know? And they come out of the house in the springtime and you come out, everyone's pale and plump and you're like, hey, you're still alive. Yeah, we're still alive, right? You gotta think about the fact that those people need to hear the beautiful story of the good news of Jesus. They need to hear that Christ and Christ only is the means by which God will count works to save a person. And that message, that hearing is critically important. Hearing the gospel message is critical. However, and this is where we need to be cautioned, hearing alone does nothing and can be dangerous. It seems incumbent on us to listen carefully to Paul's warning here about hearing and possessing the truth without any response. In other words, just because you know something to be true or just because you understand the facts about the gospel doesn't mean that you really embrace the gospel. So you could be here today and you're like, yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. And the fact is you don't get it. You got it up here, but it's never translated down into the depth of your being. As a parent, you probably understand this, I do. If I'm giving my kids some instructions because they've done something naughty and they, and they say, I know, I know, I know. I'm like, no, you don't, right? Because we're having this conversation, right? You, I know, I know. No, you don't. Don't say, don't say it like that. I, say it, say it nicer. Like, oh honey, no, you don't. You don't understand because if you understood, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. And, you know. <laughs> say it how you want, but get the message through, right? Just because you're knowing a truth doesn't mean you're doing the truth. And I would tell you that is a caution that we all need to hear. Just because you know something doesn't mean you've lived it. Just because you understand something doesn't mean you've applied it. Hearing alone does nothing and is dangerous. Third, hearing, believing, and doing are eternal issues. Friends, we have to realize heaven and hell is on the line here. We have to hear what God says about us. We have to put faith in his word. We have to believe that my works of righteousness won't work and have to believe that it's through Christ and receiving him and putting my faith in God's promises about him that I am declared righteous and then being filled with the spirit that there is this new empowerment to be able to follow him and obey. So while our works don't result in our salvation, our obedience after we come to faith in Christ matters. No matter what your background, what your heritage, or what you say you believe, genuine faith works. That's the point. And finally, 
This text reminds us that the gospel, oh, the gospel is the basis of safety from judgment. So everything in this book of Romans is designed to point us back to the righteousness of God in the gospel. All of it's designed to take us back to that, that, that question of how are you righteous or the righteousness that God demands. How do you get that righteousness? And the answer is from Romans, the righteousness that God demands is the righteousness that he gives. He gives it to you based upon Jesus' work, so that when you show up in front of God, you are filled with, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You have somebody else's righteousness that has been given to you, and that's how you withstand the judgment of God. You are there not because, you're not going to be righteous because of your own activity, you're only righteous because of Christ's activity. So that question, if you were to die and stand before God, and He should say to you, why should I let you into heaven? You know the only answer? The only answer on that day that works is this answer. I am crucified with Christ. It's not I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the gospel. That's your safety and judgment. And that is how you fulfill the law. And that is the essence of the hope of the world. It's the message of this book. And it's the means by which we walk every single day in newness of life. It is the fulfillment of the law, friends. And it is safety in judgment that I have been crucified with Christ and it's not I who live but Christ who lives in me Mm. oh Lord that everyone in this room would know and savor and believe and cherish that truth I can't believe that it would be everyone though Lord And you know, you know the secrets of our hearts. And so I pray today that you would compel, draw people today to realize that this righteousness that you demand is a righteousness that you give through Christ. And so today, oh God, would you remove the blinders, help them to see, and in seeing believe and in believing come to faith today. And Lord, for those who have held this gospel for many years or months or weeks or days, help those people to live out the reality of this good news, born by the Spirit and informed by the Scriptures that we might have a faith that really works. And when temptation comes across our path, when the enemy and our flesh and the world would collude to bring us down a particular pathway of sinful desire, would you help us to be reminded that we have been crucified with Christ and we don't live anymore. It's Christ who lives in us. And by the power of that positional reality, would you help us to be righteous people? So thank you, O Jesus, that you have fulfilled the law and have caused judgment to pass over us. We are so grateful and happy. And we want to be holy. So help us, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name, in your name. Amen. There'll be some folks up here who'd love to pray with you this morning about anything going on in your life, something you want to talk about after the service. So they're here to help you as you have need, all right?
I love you, College Park. Thanks for coming. God bless you.